You're listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry. In this episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Steve Maddox, California dairyman par excellence. He and his family farm in the central part of the state at Riverdale, uh, just west of Fresno. Steve, welcome to Dairy Voice. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to have you here. Why don't we start by just kind of having you give us a brief description of your farming activities and, and the family members involved. Thanks, Joe. Um, my actual operation is Maddox Dairy, located about 35 miles southwest of Fresno in California. Our uh, home farm is actually about 10 miles away at Ruan Dairy with my brother Pat owning that with uh, about 1,300 head of mature registered cattle and and support stock with about a 2,000 acre farm. Our farm here in in Burl uh, that I own is about uh, 6,500 acres surrounding the dairy farm. The milk, the dairy farm has got about 4,000 mature milking and dry cows with along with about 4,500 head of young stock, all registered. The farming operation has about uh, 2,000 acres of wine grapes, 1,700 acres of almonds, 1,200 acres of uh, alfalfa for hay, and about 1,800 acres double crop with winter forage and corn for silage. We also have about 400 acres of pistachios that's just now coming into into production and a small test plot for the last 12 years of uh, olives for olive oil of six acres. It does well on the poorer ground, but we decided to uh, go with the pistachios rather than the uh, olives for olive oil. Sure. But uh, joining me here on the farm is uh, my wife, Brenda, my son, Steve, his wife, Haley, and their three young kids. And then uh, my CFO is my sister, Julia Maddox Chow. Along with that, we've got a, a pretty elaborate staff that we train and, and try to stay up on things in each given area. But uh, I've got some great people, but 145 total employees. Extensive farming operations, and you've been at it a while, too. Uh, many folks know your dad, uh, the late Doug Maddox, and, and his father actually got things going, as I understand. Yeah, I learned very early on uh, about sustainability from my grandfather, Rufus, back in the you know, early 60s when I started having to help him out with the uh, irrigating. But he was one of the earlier people that uh, leveled the land to improve his irrigation with soil amendments and, and things like that, took alkali splotches that's at Ruan and turned it into some of the most productive land in the valley, constantly looking at how to improve the land how to improve uh, way of life and, and uh, working on crops. But he was a dedicated cotton farmer, so I learned how to uh, pick cotton. <laughs> my, fa- my father, Doug, actually went to college to be an ag teacher. He had a neighbor when he was a freshman in high school give him a calf with the promise of uh, going to college. He went to Cal Poly on, on that, and uh, he had a great ag teacher. He became an American farmer back in the days when Nobody from Layton hardly went even to a state farmer degree. Uh, at Cal Poly, excelled in dairy because my grandmother, Annie, loved dairy cows. And uh, he had a friend whose father hit it big in lettuce that year and offered to put him, finance him into the dairy business. My grandfather, who had retired in 1949, who thought the ag would never get better, 
once he realized my father might be going back into agriculture, invited him home, and that's where the partnership started with um, 35 or 40 head of commercial grade heifers and uh, about a dozen uh, purebreds that my father had from Cal Poly's dairy student account. And it went from there. And it certainly did go. You've got a fairly, in addition to the cropping, you've got a pretty diverse operation with your registered Holstein activities. Uh, just, just give us the thumbnail overview. But we got hooked on purebreds, obviously, and showing cattle when my father was at Cal Poly. But uh, we started fleshing uh, cattle embryo transfer work back in the mid-70s. We've exported lots of cattle. We've exported dairy cattle genetics around the world. Um, and we've shown cattle since I was one year old almost. In fact, we just got back from the Western National Spring Show, which was delayed till the first week of September in Richmond, Utah. And we had a very good day with champion and reserve champion and uh, a couple of the first places. And, and uh, it, it kind of uh, reinvigorated us and, and uh, confirmed that we're selecting and breeding the right kind. We also, we're still embryo, doing embryo transfer work uh, internally and also for uh, external people. We're, last year we had 8,500 embryos produced, uh, 6,000 for us here in the farm, 2,500 for outside people. Uh, some of those were selling fresh IVF embryos to commercial herds, particularly during the summertime heat to help them with their conception rates. Uh, we also sell bull semen. We're selling uh, right around 5,000 units a month of uh, semen to dairymen who uh, want efficient uh, breeding, which means eye conception and a reasonable cost bulls that are comparative to anything that big studs are selling. We do sell a lot. We just had a Fiesta sale is selling our premier stock, whether it's on genomics or whether on show type. We had a very good show on the 14th of March. So that, that date may mean something to some people because on the 12th is when they started calling the quarantine on this COVID-19 thing. And that kind of uh, put a stymie in some of our cattle sales. But typically we'll have over a million dollars of cattle sales per year just for purebred direction. Yes, yeah, so you just beat the you just beat the shutdown with a sale. That was a pretty exciting weekend. But a great lineup of cattle from consigners around the country, and the cattle were already there. And uh, your sale was yeah. on the internet and well sold. Yeah, thank thank goodness for the internet. If we would have had the sale a week later, I'm not sure if we could have pulled it off. But uh, we had a great crew of people, great support. Uh, we had um, originally had over 600 people RSVP to show up and, and uh, the dairymen showed up, but they left their families at home. But we had a great sale and, and uh, averaged just shy of $8,000 per animal. Well, let's, let's just talk about this, this, what you've had to put up with this year. Uh, obviously, the COVID situation hit uh, in the spring. Uh, and here in California, we had uh, some pretty, pretty hot days, uh, hotter than usual. And uh, now we've got the wildfires, uh, including a big one just uh, on the east side of Fresno County. Uh, how have you been faring? How have you or your crew been getting along this year? Well, really, we were pretty excited that this summer really hadn't gotten bad until the last three weeks for extended high temperatures and high humidity. The smoke actually caused the temperatures to come off by 10 degrees. So we weren't having 107 to 112 degree weather that we were expecting. But the problem with that is that the smoke still caused for uh, bad air days. And the cows need clean air, just like people do, to function at their highest 
ability. And, and so we have had increased mortalities uh, due to uh, the hot weather, the smoke, the air quality, and the higher humidity. Now, for the people back east, you know, when we hit 30% humidity here in California, we complain. So I, I'm not going to hold any, I mean, I'm not going to talk too long on that because I don't want my friends in Ohio telling me about 90% plus humidity because I've been there and I know what it's like. But uh, for us, 110 degrees with 30% humidity is pretty brutal. In spite of all that, uh, what, what sort of production levels are you, are you getting from the herds these days? Well, we, we converted a year and a half ago to two times a day milking from three times a day milking. We started three times a day milking in 1974. Because of the 40-hour work week being imposed upon us by the state of California, we just couldn't figure out any way of um, taking care of the cows to the degree that we would like to um, and be able to um, do it efficient, efficiently. Our labor costs would have doubled on, on that scene spending the same hours. So we uh, made some changes and, and did a gradual phase in uh, on that. But uh, right now today we're at 82 pounds per cow shipped. Not bad, fairly fresh herd. We're expecting a little bit better, but the cows have got to recover from the weather and the smoke right now. But um, we're expecting to get another half a gallon of milk uh, out of them before it's all said and done. And that's on, like I said, that's on about 3,400 head in the tank. The calf raising, uh, we've, uh, this heat and, and smoke has probably caused us to go from a 1.4% mortality rate to around a 1.9% mortality rate. And that's a little disconcerting, particularly with all the, with half of our pregnancies being from embryo transfer here, we're losing some additional pretty valuable calves, but we're still fighting that battle. And, and, uh, all in all, the weight gain on the calves is still pretty good at 65 days or at 192 pounds for the last group. So I think, I think we're, we're coming back on that. Uh, breeding efficiency during this time of year always suffers a little bit. We're still around a 26% 21-day preg rate. That's down from a 31 that we had two months ago. It's all stuff we're looking at. Obviously, with uh, me not being able to travel as much, although my crew and my wife would probably like me to be gone, a little bit more from the COVID and all the meetings that are being canceled through next February right now with the Tulare Farm Show being canceled. The uh, I'm here more, so it gives me more time to get down the weeds, go a little bit more in depth, make some tweaks in our program, and trying to uh, see what we can do just a little bit more efficient, a little bit more, a little better, but do it realistically and, and uh, have it with a, a, a positive mode. Whatever's better for the cows is what we're trying to do. Uh, with that thought in mind, uh, as we were scheduling this conversation, you mentioned that uh, Tuesdays and Saturdays are your day uh, on the ground with the cows. Uh, talk a little bit about how that goes, what you're looking for, and some of the things that you've observed that maybe if you were traveling more, you might not have might not have seen. That I haven't seen, basically, because I, I'm traveling like 90 days a year. But on Tuesdays and, and, and Saturdays are my day to walk the herd. And basically, you're looking for exceptions. We group the cows according to age. We have two-year-olds, our first lactation heifers, group by in order that they uh, calve. So there's similar calving dates, similar days fresh. Uh, second, third calf cows are, are grouped the same way as our fourth, fourth lactation and older. 
fourth lactation, older cows are, are put closer to the barn. Next closest to the barn is the second, third lactation cows. The heifers are the farthest. They get the youngest legs. They can walk a little farther. So we're trying to minimize the walking of the cattle and, and being a little more careful. So you're grouping the cows according to days fresh. So really what you're looking for is exceptions. You're looking for cows that are exceptionally fat, exceptionally skinny, cows that are a little prettier than others due to my purebred disease background, my addiction, because some of those cows, I'll, I might move up to my show barn. I have a barn just for my diva cows, for my elites, and uh, and we'll break them to lead there on a halter and, and uh, carry them for two or three weeks, then we'll put them back out so we know what they've got to have a deeper bench for when we do go to a cattle show, particularly in the state of California. But basically, you're looking at exceptions. You're looking at um, in general. Sometimes uh, later in the day, I'll, I'll pull up specific cows I'll go out and look at for mating cows. I believe in mating cows visually, not off the desk. So you're, you're um, trying to breed for that one or two faults that you'd like to improve with your bulls you're using, having some basic minimums. I know over the years you've worked with various companies on new technologies and, and new approaches. Uh, a while ago, I know that you were involved with the Canthus uh, video technology. Uh, what, do you, what technologies have you adopted for either breeding or, or herd management activities? Yeah, going back on that, why are we so open on this? My father was one of the few dairymen back in the 50s that had actually had a college degree. So local farm advisor, and he was open to people coming out and running trials, trying to get better. And our local farm advisor, I thought, was a weird uncle. He'd always show up at dinner time. it seemed like. But, you know, that opened us up. So we were always doing a trial like we're doing trials now. We just got done with a heat, heat stress trial with the University of Florida. Uh, but we did buy into the CAFA system. They put it into our entire herd. We're using it to manage our feed bunks to make sure we're not running out of feed or that we have too much feed. Uh, the next segment within the next month or so will be on uh, uh, cattle motility, how, how much they're walking, how much they're not, kind of picking up on ex extra activity or lameness. We're doing some trials on um, some embryo transfer work on different shot regimens, trying to improve on uh, embryo production or egg production on the IVF and, and the pregnancies and conception rates. We're running pretty consistently around a 60% conception rate on an individual basis, which is a lot better than AI and uh, just basically adds to the bottom line. And obviously, if you're doing that, you don't have to carry as many heifers. And that's it on the dairy. On the farming operation, we're uh, proceeding to do more subsurface drip. We're doing additional patio samples and soil samples, trying to match up the crops with what what ground will we'll do the best bet on it. We're trying different uh, pollination techniques with uh, bumblebees and, and the like to pollinate the uh, almonds. You have different weather on, on, and uh, different effects. We're using a lot of, um, during, this, during the winter time, we'll plant uh, mustard to give flowers for the bees to have a stronger uh, pollination. We have uh, 300 acres of basically wetlands or in the river bottom that we uh, promote wildlife and and, uh, and and the like. But uh, basically that's kind of it in a nutshell right now. We do have a 20, a 10 acre uh, subplot that uh, 
that is a, a testing center that we rent out to uh, a, a seed company that uh, runs test plots and subsurface drip. Always looking for the next new thing. I think that's been your family tradition, as you've just described. Well, you know, it, it's all fun and good to do a lot of this, but if it doesn't have a bottom line impact, there's no reason to continue on it. And there's been some great results, but the problem is that the financial method did, didn't work out. Well, speaking of finances, uh, where is it that you sell your milk? And what what's kind of your take on, on uh, the national promotion scene these days? Well, that's two different... Uh, Yes. Segment. So I'll put my dairyman hat on now, and I, I ship my milk to California dairies in California. About 60% of its milk goes into butter, powder. And uh, as we're getting used to our new federal order that's been here for just shy of two years, we're finding out that that's not really the best mix right now because uh, the, the people that ship, you know, we have about 25% of our milk goes to cheese plants. And with a, with a $10 spread between cheese milk and butter powder milk, class three and class four, uh, that puts us at a slight disadvantage to some of the other co-ops in the area. The uh, margins from the uh, cheese milk price through the co-op, they are distributing to uh, minimize the pain on that, so to speak. But they're still exporting. Exporting is going well for um, to the Far East and other, other countries through uh, California dairies and through uh, the co-op of co-ops that they have Dairy America. On DMI, um, we were when this thing hit. We were in the just about six months or so into uh, a twenty thirty plan for trying to project out what the industry is going to look like. You know, DMI was going to project out what the industry was going to look like in twenty thirty, trying to be prepared, trying to uh, do preliminary or be proactive on research, on market research, on developing new products to uh, fit into that, so we were ready for bear when when the time was needed. And of course, COVID-19 kind of blew that up and gave us a new reality and a new lay of the land of what could happen. But one positive thing that is happening with people eating more at home, um, dairy product use is up, fluid milk is up, butter is is up on, on usage, kind of regaining a lot of that lost fluid milk sales. Fluid milk, of course, a lot across most of the nation is, uh, very significant for milk pricing. California, it's about 12%, so it's not that big of a deal. But every pound of milk sold is, is good for the, for the industry. We're seeing, particularly maybe driven by these high PPDs uh, with the spread in the milk price between uh, three and four, we're hearing more talk about uh, reforming the federal order system. Do you have any thoughts on that as um, you and your neighbors as new participants in a federal order? Well, be careful what you ask for. You know, the the uh, the reason for the big spread in the PPDs is that there's deep pooling going on. And so the big cheese plants and, the, and where they can are deep pooling and not sharing that additional income with the rest of the pool. If you forced everybody to, to pool 100% of the milk, we wouldn't have any negative PPDs. And I'm sure... Half the people are, are, aren't going to like that either. So I don't think you can get a vote on it. But that's, that's just a fact of life, dealing, dealing with it. And uh, most people are blaming their co-ops for it. They might as well look no further than their neighbors shipping to other co-ops. It is what it is. And, and uh, 
it's up to your co-op to stay competitive and, and try to minimize the impact to be more diversified. The better diver diversification you are, the less this will affect you. But there was, a, a back in uh, May or June, I have a neighbor 20 miles from me that uh, did get paid $10 more per hundred weight than I did on a, on a mailbox price. So uh, Always a lively topic in the coffee shop. Always a lively, well, coffee shops and locker rooms. I'm not sure if you should believe either one, what you hear <laughs> or see. So, Well, as, um, as we kind of get to the end of our session here, uh, this session anyway, maybe we can do this again, as you say, but uh, your son's actively involved. Uh, he's got children who obviously are, are young children at this point, but potentially next generation. How do you and, and uh, Pat look at things as you kind of look down the road? Or Steve Jr., how, how are you seeing this industry continuing? Well, um, obviously, we've got to make sure we have a viable operation. So you have to work at um, figuring out how to cash flow your operation separate, separate from the purebreds. The purebreds is a different um, business unit. But you've got to, got to make sure the milk pays for itself as best you can. I can't rely on the, the almonds to uh, pay for my hobby of daring forever. That, that's kind of, we're trying to make each segment uh, self-sufficient, covering its own. And um, that's kind of where we're going about it. My son, Steve, does have two sisters. And that's a family estate issue that I've got, I'm wrestling with trying to figure out how do I uh, take care of uh, some of their um, inheritance yet not impact our day-to-day business. And, and uh, I think there's mechanism out there to do that. I, I've got several things in the works, but nothing I can talk about now anyway. But uh, sure. it's something common that uh, you, you've had several groups talk about it. I, I know you've participated in some estate planning things, as have some of the other uh, magazines and online people. But um, we're trying to maximize what we have and, and where we're going. California also, in addition to the 40-hour work week, is, is starting to restrict our groundwater pumping. It, uh, we do have a decade or so yet on that, but that's something that we're going to have to address. And we're going to have to do some uh, water banking and things like that to, uh, or leave some land vacant or, or fallow to um, qualify under those, those rulings. You know, it's just good stewardship, good, good sustainability. Let me go back. DMI is spending a lot of time identifying, measuring the leading sustainability practices that are bottom line driven, not just for the big guys, but what can be translated to the smallest of farms. And uh, not that everything will fit everybody, but in, in aggregate, um, I think the industry can be carbon neutral by in, in, in good time earlier than what they're predicting. They're saying 2050. I think we can do it earlier than that because we have some large farms that are carbon neutral now and some small farms that are. So uh, I think, I think uh, that's a story not being told and, and uh, these people pushing, politically pushing uh, environmental things uh, don't really know the full story and, and how valuable the dairy industry is to uh, a better environmental world. Amen. I think that's probably a good note to leave on. <laughs> And we really appreciate you being with us. Uh, we're talking with Steve Maddox of Maddox Dairy and Ruan Dairy in uh, California. This is Joel Hastings for Dairy Voice on DairyBusiness.com. Thank you, Joel.